Hello, I'm Casey. And I'm Matt. And this is Too Much Film School. So today we're going to talk about uh, a film that is close to everyone's heart except for ours. I think I agree with you partway. I think you lumped me in there with the not being close to my heart. I think since Brian Singer's also a USC alum and this was a popular movie when I was growing up, this was a, uh, does hold a certain nostalgia in a place and time for me. I think looking back at it through the years, I would agree with you that the ending is the kind of tentpole or why it stands out and why it got so noticed and uh, Academy Award nominations and actual wins. I, I agree. I mean, it has a special place in my heart as well. Uh, the My freshman year, Brian Singer came to uh, uh, an event at US at, uh, at the film school and afterwards he, ha- he hung out with some of my friends uh, back at the dorm and we popped in the usual suspects and turned on the commentary and, and Brian Singer then commented on the commentary, which was a pretty weird like meta thing to be uh, uh, to actually live through. Um, but again, most people, regard this as, as one of the better uh, films of the 90s, and I uh, I think it's kind of mediocre. And one thing, right off the bat, before even having seen the film, the poster annoyed the crap out of me. <laughs> there is a list of names uh, in a particular order, and the characters are all standing in a line, and yet, for some reason, uh, th- these don't correspond in any way. It says Stephen Baldwin over Kevin Pollack, Gabriel Byrne over Stephen Baldwin, Benicio Del Toro over Gabriel Byrne, Chaz Palminteri over uh, Benicio Del Toro, and then both Kevins over Kevin Spacey. It's not clear who anybody is on this poster. There's an extra name. Like, why would you line them? And, And I understand how photo shoots work. They did not shoot them all together like this. They shot each one of them individually and then rearranged them in Photoshop or whatever the Photoshop equivalent was in 1995. It was probably an actual shop of photography. (laughs) Scissors were involved. Yes. And they, and they, they had a choice in how they could, in how they arranged the five of them. And yet they decided to explicitly not line them up in the order that is, and everyone in our school had this poster on their wall, and every single time I was like, which one of them is Gabriel Byrne? Because I'm a little bit confused. Every single time. Clearly the visual department said, oh, let's line them up. They couldn't put them, you know, in anything that looked like height order. It had to bring kind of the view towards the center. Um, And then Gabriel Byrne is at the center. He's kind of at the center of the story. He is. So I'm sure whoever constructed it visually put them together in the way that makes sense. It got approved and everything. And then they didn't know who the people were, so they put their... No. Uh, <laughs> the yeah, I know. Their names contracts are... re- require them to be in a certain order. Like, you get... That stuff gets sorted out way beforehand. I don't know why Stephen Baldwin went just <laughs> on the left. But uh, clearly, they did it visually, and then they put them out there. I agree. I would have gone with a different style, not having the names left to right. Kevin Spacey is... Arguably number two or even number one above uh, Gabriel Byrne. It doesn't, none of it, this whole poster, just as a starting point, doesn't make sense. Bad and then it doesn't. Note. It does. It ends on a great note. There's one big flourish to leave everyone with a great impression, regardless of what happened in the middle. And, and you know, everyone, uh, and it, it, there is actually, there's, there's, I don't know how one could disagree about that ending. Like, it is definitely, uh, you don't, first time you see it, by the way, spoiler alert, the first time you see it, you definitely 
don't see it coming. Uh, and, and even, and, and uh, it definitely um, changes your understanding of the film and, and, and all of the characters. And it's, it's not a, a, a trick. Like it is definitely uh, ingrained well, in the story. Yes. It's not a gimmick one off at the end that tries to cover things. Yeah. And, and like, but if, if, if you sort of ignore that one sort of, uh, uh, high point. I was trying to, there's like a French word for high point that I can't think of. Um, <laughs> if you ignore that, that if, if you're able to set aside that one sort of brilliant moment, the rest of the film just doesn't, doesn't live up to that. And, and granted, like one could argue, you know, say, uh, Titanic, if you didn't have the boat sinking. a boat sinking, right. like it would just be a period romance, but you could still, and it's not, Titanic is not necessarily the greatest film in the world, but there are certain points you could sort of point at and be like, this is really well done. This is definitely a quality period romance. And then there's a particular, and not that the boat sinking was a twist, the ending of any film is obviously the point. Like, that's what every movie is trying to get to. But there are still points along the way that you can say this was a certain amount of quality, and I don't think Usual Suspects measures up to that. It's hard to give credit to Brian Singer as a director when the only thing anyone can point to is, ah, he's really Kaiser Soze, and that's it. The rest right. of the film is kind of there. Yeah, and I think that the writing is definitely the best, the highest praised part of this from Christopher McQuarrie. Um, but it was at least a decent enough outing. I think there are so, the shots evoke the right tone or kind of have a noir aspect, at least in the beginning, setting up the criminals themselves, the kind of short snippets of their life and being arrested uh, for the initial lineup kind of gives a small bite or a small kind of introduces very quickly what they are like in each character's persona. But I, I defy you to point to anything in that, in even that sequence that you can say that's something the director or the filmmaker did. Like it's, it was all there in the script, you know, the, the, how short those scenes were and going from one thing to the other. I would even imagine like some of the like flashier things, like we see the cops with the guns and then we hear it sounds like gunshots and it turns out it's a paint can mixing. I would wager that that's in the script. I can see those being in the script as well. And even the part where Kevin Pollack reaches under the car for a rag. And they, they think it's a gun. Yeah. And that's right. right, and that might have been in the writing. I think that a lot of the visual choices are serviceable in the close-ups, the kind of use of light. You know, early on, interrogation rooms are a lot of light and dark and do set up noir-like elements that make it feel gritty even if we're not in the sepia tones or the early 50s with low and film stock that would actually have the metal flake in the film and make it the B-movie look that became noir. The best parts of it are the writing and some of the performances and that's actually what it won Academy Awards for. Uh, I think the best the directing and the visual style are serviceable or they're on par to not be distracting from those positive elements. I would actually argue most of it is just sort of adequate, and then there are parts that actually are distracting. Like, the first interrogation that we see with uh, 
Kevin Spacey is in that weird wood panel room with the big uh, uh, plaque in the background, and it's a bright light straight down on his head. And then when we see the uh, when we see the Baldwin um, getting interviewed, it's the same lighting and the same sort of framing of the shot, except it's a different room, and it's confusing because it's a it's a completely different time frame. But yet you shot it in the same way, in a way to make me think that it's the same. And I I didn't understand like there's there's instances of that where it's it's so like there, there, there's no way to not associate. Like it's clearly intended to associate those two scenes together, and yet that that doesn't make any sense at all. I think him. it makes sense in that even if he's being interrogated by the DA in San Pedro at that point, Kevin Spacey in the present, and then going back to the lineup was in New York, I think, with the Baldwin and Kevin Pollock and everyone going through the. It's still an interrogation from the police, so, so it should feel similar. I think it is confusing to have them that close and jumping back and forth between time. So it kind of ties it as all police stations or all interrogations are the same with the bright light and smoke in the air and too much atmosphere. Which, again, sort of makes sense, except that Gabriel Byrne's interrogation isn't like that. It's, it's, just, uh, it's just confusing. That whole opening sequence, once the interrogations start and they bounce around in time to, you know, uh, the first time they meet to the uh, Giancarlo Esposito uh, at the dock, like... We're not. It's not clear where we are in time, uh, at all. Like, there's no, there's no flashback noise. There's no, uh, like, it's not the only, and and because the lighting of the of verbal's interrogation post burning down to the one that happened several months ago with these guys, they're lit the same way in the same exact framing. It makes you associate them in time. It makes it seem like the whole thing is happening all at the same time. But Giancarlo Esposito's sequence is actually really close to the end of the timeline, it, it's very unclear while you're watching it the first time where everybody falls in time because of the way that they shot similarly. Yeah, I think looking back, I maybe only know where they're going because I've seen it many times. So originally I probably wouldn't have followed that because I remember several of the things early on not being clear, such as being in the docks or with uh, the body floating in the water away from the boat and being wondering who that is. Is this just setting up that, yeah, people died there? Or is that going to come back later? I think even when it does come back later, it's not really clear who it is. Yeah, it's not even clear if it's that body that they're talking about. Like, I, I would argue that all of those, uh, that, that whole sequence is very confusing and not, uh, not ambiguous in an interesting way. It just sort of seems sloppy. I agree, and a lot of of the early parts in the film aren't clear as to how they motivate the plot, such as their, how they get together. The lineup is alluded to later that it was all cleverly orchestrated, but then I think some of the things are just done in throwaway lines, such as Keaton not being able to go back to his life, him trying to turn clean, but he's forced into this. I'll give you that all of this might be made up by Kevin Spacey, but... It still, to us, feels like, well, maybe he could have gone back to... I feel like apologists for this film can justify nearly everything by saying Tim and Spacey made it up. But that's not really fair, because you're supposed to... First of all, you're supposed to believe it the first time. Uh, but but secondly, it's it's never a point where it's, he's lying, or... Again, you could interpret it as either he is lying or he is telling the truth and this is a thing that happened. It's it's not clear what happened. So much of the of the film takes place 
in Kevin Spacey's description of things that he he says uh, the cops are harassing Gabriel Byrne. We never see the cops harass Gabriel Byrne except for the very opening scene. We, we don't know why he can't go back to... Uh, we, we do know in the sense that we're told, uh, we're given a reason, but there's no point that we can actually point to and say, hey, look, here's the cops, you know, sitting outside his apartment and, and, and glaring at him or, uh, you know, coming into his restaurant and roughing up the, the cooks or anything like that. Like, nothing, he's never actually harassed on camera. Yeah, and if it is even something that Kevin Spacey's character is making up in then it could be the it's still shown to us as opposed to just told in the right. exposition. So I, you you could argue that Gabriel that Kevin Spacey made up Gabriel Byrne's existence or his his participation entirely because they don't find his body on the boat, which is why Chaz Palminteri believes that Gabriel Byrne is still alive uh, at the end. So maybe Gabriel Byrne is just doing something else during this entire week long month long period. Of story that between we do know that the lineup happened. That must have happened because there are records of it. Between the lineup and uh, the boat, maybe Kevin Spacey killed Gabriel Byrne and dumped his body somewhere in between. Like yes, if you're going to say that the character is lying and that covers up everything, then you can literally come up with absolutely anything. That does not mean that they made a good film. <laughs> like it's right. still poorly constructed and and not well thought out because of that. Right, and I think the a lot of the jobs they pull in between, it's not a clear relation how it leads to the end. They have they rob the uh, New York's finest taxi service, and it kind of just again is a tool or device to show how clever they can be and reference some kind of underworld lingo like "man with the plan," which comes across kind of a little forced there, but they do it in a humorous way with the vans blocking them in and then lighting them police car on fire and then that gives them a reason to go to Los Angeles which gets them the next job that's supposed to be a diamond heist but turns out to be the drugs that they steal so they're loosely connected because that ultimately they're looking out for whoever set them up to end up stealing drugs when they were trying to steal diamonds and brings them to the lawyer for Kaiser Sose but when they're happening and I remember the first time feeling like I didn't see the connection they kind of bumbled through Oh, they're robbing people, and now they're going to see Pete Powerful Sweet. Like you said, those scenes um, are definitely seem disconnected. And honestly, like when you think back on the usual suspects, you remember the opening scenes where they're all hanging out in the prison cell, which is, by the way, the nicest prison cell I've ever seen. Like, there's like a glass wall on one side. Like, why is it doesn't look like a prison cell at all. Like, there's no one, uh, there's no, like, uh, biker in there who's uh, about to rape them. <laughs> it's just the five of them, and it looks like a dentist's office with a bu- with bars on one side. And that's it. The but you uh, said that, by the way, the nicest prison cell you've ever seen, sounded a lot like from personal experience. <laughs> <laughs> so, the biker rape story also sounded a little, but we'll move on we'll just, from that. I'd like to not remember that if I could. Uh, it's... We, everybody remembers that scene, that whole sort of little sequence, which is nice. And then we remember uh, the end when it's uh, when we see the we, I was in a barbershop quartet and the guy was as bad as an orca. Uh, the, those three sequences in the middle, if you haven't seen the movie a million times, I guarantee you don't remember. You might remember the cop thing just because they lit a police car on fire. That's kind of cool. But like watching it again for this, and I've seen the movie, like you said, uh, a, a dozen times. 
I didn't remember upon the rewatching that, oh yeah, there was the diamond heist in the in the garage that turned out to be a drug heist. Um, I, I completely blocked that out, and part of the reason I forgot that is because it's kind of terrible. Like, it's not... Uh, there's a lot of camera movement, but there's nothing actually happening on camera. Like, uh, the, the Baldwin... Which Baldwin is it, by the way? Steven, possibly, yeah. Uh, Steven Baldwin, he's standing there, and he just sort of looks confused, and he's he's deciding who to shoot for a good minute and a half. Yeah. And then he picks up a second gun, which is, in a movie that's supposed to be semi-realistic, like, shooting two guns at once and hitting both of the guys who are holding hostages while moving... It's sort of astounding, and there's no note of how astounding it. Like, no one is like, holy shit, you just shot two people at the same time. It's perfectly fine. And then, you know, they kill the last dude, and then they jump in the blood-covered van and drive away. And granted, like, again, all of this could be a lie, but, like, did did Kevin Spacey make up how boring it was while the well, shootout was happening? I think it's supposed to feel wrought with tension because he's trying to shoot them, uh, and it's supposed to prove what a badass he is that he can make that shot. But it does come across very static for as much as camera movement there is. It, Gabriel Byrne shouting at the guy to give him the case, give him the case, goes on way too long. He uh, must say it 15 times. Yeah, and then Kevin Spacey admitting to murder to the police, even though he has, uh, he has immunity and things like that. But he just kind of shoots the guy because he won't give him the case. Even though it doesn't... I don't know if it was handcuffed to his arm. Just go around to the other window and break it if you don't want to. Or knock him out with the gun. There are a lot of other options that he chooses not to take aside from pleading with him. And I'm, I'm kind of surprised that guy not reacting, not reacting, not reacting, gun in his face, not reacting the entire time, sees Stephen Baldwin shoot two people at, at once, still does not hand over the case. Yeah. Like... How it is, uh, there's nothing about that scene that makes any any damn sense at all. Like, I don't even know the way it's shot. I don't know how that guy drew his gun in the first place for Gabriel Byrne to, to wrestle with him. The whole sequence is sort of cut together in this in this very muddy, it's not clear what we're looking at kind of way. And, and you know, there are several scenes uh, in the movie that are pieced together in ways that don't make any sense. When, they, when they're threatening uh, uh, Kobayashi... Um, after having killed his bodyguards, uh, people bounce around the room uh, several times. Like, you just... Like, Stephen Baldwin's in front of him, and then suddenly he's behind him. And, and like, they cover it up by cutting to Kevin Spacey just being Kevin Spacey. And it's... I think they have... They the, added in some feet-rustling sound when they're looking at Kevin right. Spacey. To that try and, it hardly covers it. I agree, I think, that when you were looking at that scene, that it, the screen direction may reverse on that, but... I also, I mean, I agree with you that several of the scenes don't show exactly what's going on, such as when they find Benicio Del Toro's character's dead. They, they A, just refer to, oh, yeah, he tried to run, and so he got killed. And then, for some reason, we're on a beach. They somehow, out of all of Los Angeles, <laughs> stumbled upon him in a cave on a beach, or we're told he's there. But there's a single shot from the back of a cave looking out onto the beach with a lighthouse, apparently, which... I have to imagine they are down by San Pedro or Long Beach, but I don't make down there much, so don't know how many lighthouses. I don't know if they still work that way. Right. Maybe they do. So then they're talking about, oh, we can't run, look what happened. They killed him, but we don't know how they found him or killed him. It's not overly threatening because you could imagine he was dumb about it because his character I didn't like very much at all. He couldn't speak clearly. 
it's 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 not clear. We don't see him run. We don't see him get killed. And then literally, we don't even see his body. Like if you're sort of if you're not paying strict attention to the film, if you're you know watching it on television while you're doing the dishes or something, like it's not entirely clear who it is that they're talking about. It's just that there were four of them and the fifth one is missing. It's as if his contract ran out and he's like, I'm going home, guys, and they threw a body double on the ground or something. Like, why don't we ever... Why don't we see his... Just Benicio Del Toro with a bullet in his head. Like, that... They never... They don't ever show it. So there's so much of this film that is unclear because of the way that they shot it. And I don't understand... It's 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 just mind-boggling that they don't show that. And then while we're on the subject of the cave, I'd like to point out the, the uh, hey, look, I'm making a movie mom shot where they go from the cave to the mug. Circular. Yeah. There's, there's a couple of those in the movie that are just, pay attention to me, like, kind of direction, which, again, I don't think the direction is that great. It's just, it's it, a lot of it calls attention to itself, or the, uh, uh, the constant... Zooming in on like zooming every is a little weird. It's not a technique that people use in America in the modern times. It always strikes me as either dated or foreign. Like they still zoom in England a lot in British movies or um, New Zealand and Australia. You see it a lot. I think I, I remember seeing it in Lord of the Rings. Had a lot of zooming. I'm like, oh, Peter Jackson's from there, so I'll let it slide. It has to do with all the extra U's that they use in their words. <laughs> there you go. Or how big. The... I think they spell zoom with a U. <laughs> I agree. Zooms stuck out. I always attribute them to either dated or foreign as a technique. Whenever I see it, it always seems like. They would have rather had a dolly, but it took too much time. And it's like, like in the seventies, like I remember reading old uh, American cinematographers from from when I was in film school. Uh, cameramen really did think that a zoom lens substituted for a dolly move, and it doesn't. It looks it's sort of cheap and and sad. You can feel the movement's not natural. You know yeah. that it, you're not moving through the space, and it's at a different rate. And particularly when a zoom lens stops. Like, there's something about that that just irks me. <laughs> I don't know why. It is, it's jarring for either starts or stops. They are recently, or, you know, in recent years, they have zoom guns that can make them a lot more gradual, ramp up and ramp down into them. But still, they just don't come across the same as physical movement, either with a dolly, a steady cam, anything that moves the camera through the actual space. Yeah, and the the other the other sort of technique that he uses frequently in this film that bugs me not in a in a serious way. It's just that it's it's a I'm doing this because I'm trying to spice up this movie that's mostly people talking. He'll start a scene on an object and then sort of drift over to the actual action, and he does it a, a number of times, and it it often feels like. Uh, I couldn't think of an interesting way of of doing this scene, so this is. I'm going to move the camera around instead of instead of you know stage it. Like uh, for instance, um, like his his poor understanding of staging in the interrogation room scene. It's mostly everybody's just sitting still. Like like and he'll just shoot close ups and close ups and close ups and he'll get and at one point uh, Stephen Baldwin you know gets up and moves towards Gabriel Byrne. But like everybody is static. Like everybody the the cops in the very opening scene. They walk down the stairs and they come up and they lean over Gabriel Byrne. And then the entire scene is them leaning over Gabriel Byrne. And that's the extent of it. Like, nobody moves around in any natural or, or realistic way. Like, they, you say they're trying to mimic noir films. Well, in a noir movie, 
you'd have you'd have a wide shot and a fairly static shot, and people would be moving in and out. Like yeah. they'd come close to the camera, and then they'd walk away, and someone else would be close to the camera. They don't do that sort of thing. It's it's everybody's sort of still, um, and and we just get close ups. And and I think he you'll shoot it's so that you can shoot a lot of coverage, and then you know that you've covered everything. But even in the and like the one scene where he tries to uh, have some. Uh, you know, people moving around here and there, like is the the Kobayashi interrogation scene, and he fucks it up, and <laughs> Stephen Baldwin flops from one side to the other, and doesn't make any sense. Like it, it, it's it's poor craftsmanship in terms of, of filmmaking. It may have just been a weaker tool in his repertoire, and he knew it, and so was shooting around it to try and not waste all these big budget actors' time on you know one of his earlier outings. So I didn't. Feel it stick out as much when you pointed out the flipping. Uh, I did see it and the screen direction kind of, but I think on viewing it, it didn't stick out to me as I'm much. I'm quite certain he didn't flop screen direction because he's uh, uh, Kobayashi is still facing left to right. Like I don't think he, I don't think the camera jumped over the line. I think Stephen Baldwin just this moved. Way. They might have cut out a portion of the scene. Like Stephen Baldwin, there might have been like a line of dialogue while right. Stephen Baldwin was walking along. They cut it out for for time. But it's still, like, weirdly constructed. Um, and you say that may have been a weaker part of his repertoire, but I, I have yet to see a strong part of his repertoire other than zoom lenses. There is something good in there that people like. No? There, there's a lot of great actors in this movie. So you can you could argue that he's good at casting people. But I, I don't believe that... And, and, okay, so maybe this is hard for me to say, but I find it hard to believe that a guy's second film... Uh, that he d- told anything to Kevin Spacey that Kevin Spacey didn't already know to get him that that first Academy Award. Like, right. No, I think none of these actors needed Brian Singer there to tell them how to give their. They're all really good performances. Uh, I mean, except Benicio del Toro is a little bit. Yeah, I, I distracting. Benicio del Toro too much. Uh, outside of even this movie, I find he mutters and a lot or can't speak clearly and they write it in as a, oh that's his character in this or uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas uh, he was in Snatch he had like two lines that were mumbled and yet he wins an Academy Award arguably it was for Traffic which he spoke Spanish in the entire time <laughs> but I'm still going to go ahead and say he can't speak English clearly <laughs> not that I'm racist or I hold that against him but uh, putting him in a lot of movies and saying he's really good uh, I don't believe it also when I was in film school, I used to park cars at night, and I parked his car, and he was a jerk. So <laughs> that, I'm going to go ahead and say, makes some crappy actor undeserving of the Academy Award. Uh, but did he mumble? He in- did, actually. He got out at a party with only Hollywood A-listers on it. It was a Golden Globes party. 250-some-odd cars of nothing but celebrities. Harvey Keitel, Lawrence Fishburne, Denzel Washington. Producer Del Toro pulls up, and he's like, 1989... Chevy Bronco, he gets trucker cap, and gets out, we take the car away, I have one of my guys start parking it, he's halfway up the driveway and mumbles back, oh, keep it up front, when he's not big enough, in my mind, to keep it right up front, and we weren't keeping anyone up front, even the large list of names that I think are better actors and much higher in Hollywood than him. So mumbles it, then comes back out after the party, doesn't hand anyone his valet ticket that we gave to everyone, and again... Selma Hayek, everyone else is turning in their tickets so they can get their car, because we're asking for them. He stands there and expects we will all go, oh, it's Benicio Del Toro, drop everything, <laughs> and find out which car is his without him giving us a ticket. 
and uh, bring it up here. So after he waits there for 15 minutes, he starts to complain that his car isn't there. And I ask in a mumbly voice, when, <laughs> I ask if he gave his ticket, and he says no. And I'm like, okay, I'll take that. He's like, oh, so keep it up front. So, again, not my favorite person, maybe in real life. <laughs> not the greatest actor, in my opinion, and not someone that we should be giving Academy Awards to for mumbling. Kevin Pollack, I think, was even good. It's coming from a comedic background. Uh, this was the first thing I remembered him in, where he wasn't going straight for laughs. He did have some other funny parts. Yeah, he, he definitely had... Even the lines that are sort of semi-serious, he says them in a way that are funny. Like, you could, you could really point to... Even, I mean... I don't know how many Stephen Baldwin movies I've seen, <laughs> but uh, this is definitely his best uh, performance. Like he does, he's sort of a, a giant dick bag, and, yeah. and he does a good job of it. Um, but like, I didn't even realize again after even after having seen this movie several times, I didn't connect that Stephen Baldwin and Benicio del Toro were like partners, and and uh, until this this most recent time watching it. Uh, Kevin Pollack is like, ah, oh, he's not my partner. And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess they sort of knew each other beforehand. But I, I, I don't know if they even interacted at any point in the film to sort of demonstrate. Again, they didn't demonstrate that these guys are partners and best friends or whatever. It's just we're told, oh, yeah, they work together. So uh, this is their thing. I think he, there might be some shots in the holding cell where they talk beforehand before Stephen Baldwin presents the plan to the room. And then, yeah, after Kevin Pollack says he was my partner, Stephen Baldwin said he, I worked with him for five years. But it is a little after the fact since he's already dead. I don't think Usual Suspects measures up. It just had the ending was so far beyond what most movies have. The, the way you realize, oh, they were planting seeds the whole time, the barbershop quartet, the right. orca. Although you could even argue that like they didn't play fair in that you never saw you never had a chance of guessing these things. Right. It's not like you didn't see the see barbershop them. quartet. Right. I think it also might get a lot of credit uh, for an ending like that because it was not done before, and I say that loosely. It might have been done before, going back through every film, but of course. Shyamalan drove the whole twist ending into the ground and had people mock him for it, kind of. So I think now, if this came out now, it wouldn't be as lauded. But I think that it was innovative for the time, and that's a lot of why this movie's held up. Speaking of the ending, it's interesting watching it again, how I always remember, hey, the ending is great in this. It redoes everything you thought about the movie and changes the way you look at it in a way like Rashomon, where... It's an unreliable narrator, and anything you see could have not happened. Uh, but I thought, always thought that it's interesting, and it really kind of sapped some of the energy from the ending this time when I watched it, knowing not only the ending that he was Kaiser Sose, but that all of this, he orchestrated all these people to get in the same lineup in hopes, hopes, hopes that they'd discuss this plot so that then they would go to a place that he could get them to do another job and get under his thumb. Again, this is if it actually happened. It could all be made up. But he goes through all these things, having his lawyer maneuver people into places, get Edie Finneran out to cover the Argentinian and everything, just so he could get on the boat to have people take down the Hungarian gang so that he could get in the same room with the one man who could identify him and put a bullet in him to know that his secret is safe. And as he walks out in his big triumphant masterminded plan at the end where he's walking, he straightens out his hand, starts walking straight. Chaz Palminteri and the entire police department now know exactly what he looks like, <laughs> have talked to him for four hours, 
And no, many things, obviously, about his cover idea, or, you know, his... Uh, right, because he clearly... Uh, there are certain things we know for a fact happened, like the lineup happened. Right. He was in jail as Verbal Kent for some period of time with, right. they with had Gabriel a Byrne. Record of that, and Chaz Palmatier refers to like he did years at this place. So apparently, he donned his alter ego of Verbal Kent to go out and form backstory <laughs> and spent years in prison playing that role uh, just to matter so they could dust it off later and use it to get these people into this boat. So he apparently now has to throw that away, and again, everyone has a picture or can describe him in great detail, <laughs> and yet the whole point of the movie was to kill the one guy that could do that. <laughs> so he didn't win out overall. I realized that it wasn't part of the plan because the Hungarian who was supposed to be dead was yeah. supposed to be dead. It was uh, not even the guy who was there to hit it. It was somebody else that saw him and was like, yeah, I can tell you what it looks like. But... The whole point of all, how many more gangs is he going to have to get together to take up <laughs> Chaz Palmicherry, Giancarlo Esposito, Nick from Cheers? You know, like all, these, all these people now know exactly what he looked like and have been in his presence. They're like, yeah, that's Kaiser Soze. And presumably, if Kaiser Soze is, is this giant criminal mastermind, like, they would then put his picture, you know, his mugshot as Verbal Kent. They put it out on, you know, the FBI watch list, oh, the yeah. Interpol. Interpol. Like, <laughs> the world over. So it's like, yeah, that. Didn't, you didn't win out in the end, even though you are very smug driving off from the Jaguar. Yeah. So I think that even this time, I realized it even more how undone his kind of enterprise is probably going to be. So it sapped a little bit of the smugness, I think. He's, you, could, you could point to, uh, and again, you can't really tell because he could be lying about everything. When he kills, uh, when we see the story of Kaiser Soze killing his whole family, like... Uh, it a lot of it just and the part of this is, is is Brian Singer's staging and everything. Like he shoots a guy, a guy holding his daughter hostage. He shoots that one guy, and the next hostage taker grabs the girl. Like what is that going to accomplish? Save me! <laughs> like you you just saw him shoot the dude holding a gun to her head a minute ago. How is that going to help now? Yeah, it, you can write that off as him being stupid, but. I agree that scene, when I watched it again, didn't make as much sense because he says he then looked fondly over his family and showed these men of Will what Will was. And, like, he kills them and says I would, he would rather see them dead than have them live another day after this. And I had thought, oh, well, his wife was raped and his family beaten, so he doesn't want them to have to deal with that kind of memory or damage. But... I think no, yeah, his wife would probably vote for life. Anyway, <laughs> then I was then I was like, no, it was more to show this guy to tell him go tell everyone how badass I am and establish my you know awesome story. So it kind of made him a lot colder seeming. If it's true, he's willing to kill his family and people just to sound like a badass. And if it's true, it, it does seem like Kevin Spacey married up. <laughs> it doesn't not clear how he got a woman that looks like that right. to marry him. They were in a richly appointed, apparently hung, everywhere in Hungary is uh, the 16th century or something. <laughs> it, they had like tapestries and stuff up, so he must have been doing okay in his Hungarian business. But again, all of that could have been made up in order to be the spook story. It could be part of the rumor and he's just repeating it, or he could have made it up on the spot to make up the rumor part, but it seemed like... Well, we do know that criminals are aware of Kaiser Sosa right. because the bird Hungarians guy. are even aware because they were a Hungarian mafia, so 
at least at some point he did business in Hungary. I don't know if Kevin Spacey looks Hungarian. But when you're when you're telling the story of uh, how badass this Kaiser, so even if it's completely made up, like the retarded uh, goon is not like part of your story. That's poor direction, <laughs> right? So uh, it doesn't it, it doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense. Um, so so just sort of overall, uh, to me, it. The, the the characters are are the characters are likable uh, at the start. They're sort of clever and interesting, and you know Kevin Spacey's funny, and Stephen Baldwin's crazy, and Benicio del Toro mumbles, uh, and Gabriel Byrne just doesn't want to have anything to do with them. And then in the end, Kevin Spacey is this brilliant mastermind, and it's a clever twist. But there's everything in between those that the first scene and the last scene. Just it's so unmemorable, even after having seen it several times, and it's so incoherent having seen it just before recording this, like it just, it's not a good film. It's a good ending. I agree with that. And really, I think the two high points of the movie are what won the Academy Awards with Kevin Spacey's performance and the writing. Yeah. I mean, but you could say that about, uh, just about any movie that Kevin Spacey has been. (laughs) No, (laughs) he's pretty much the highlight of any movie. It, Did even, you see K-Pax? I did not. He's, but he's been downhill since American I, I, Beauty. In 21, terrible film. And a good book, by the way. The book that's based on this good. Movie, awful. Kevin Spacey, still good in an right. awful movie. He does have a knack for doing that, but I feel like he can't pick a movie to save <laughs> He was lucky early on in, you know, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, and things like Swimming with Sharks. Like, he had some great projects, and then once he got big enough from winning for American Beauty... They just went, you can be in anything you want. And then that was where trouble happened. <laughs> it's like, I'll do the big kahuna, which was kind of character driven and forgettable. Uh, and then things just, again, like KPEX, the life of David Gale. And it's just these middling, just slowly sinking movies <laughs> that he's in just because he thinks maybe they have good characters. Superman Returns. Superman Let's Returns. Let's not forget. I liked him in, but again, the movie Ugh. overall. Did, had some bad points. There is nothing good about them. Kevin Spacey was entertaining, yeah. and Superman catching the airplane was was pretty awesome. Yeah. Uh, but then Lois Lane faints, and Lois Lane should not faint. There were a lot of problems. Terrible with movie with that movie. Uh, we should do that movie next. I agree. It will be our next installment of Brian Sanger Dump. Uh, no promises, though. Who knows? Next one might well be Rashomon. <laughs>